0: Chapter Forty Five of Tess of the Durbervilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tess of the Durbervilles by Thomas Hardy, read by Adrian Prezilas. Phase the Sixth, the Convert, Chapter Forty Five. Till this moment she had never seen or heard from d'Urberville since her departure from Trantridge. The re-encounter came at a heavy moment, one of all moments calculated to permit its impact with the least emotional shock. But such was unreasoned memory that, though he stood there openly and palpably a converted man, who was sorrowing for his past irregularities, a fear overcame her paralyzing her movement, so that she neither retreated nor advanced. To think of what emanated from that countenance when she saw it last, and to behold it now! There was the same unpleasantness of mien, but now he wore neatly trimmed old-fashioned whiskers, the sable moustache having disappeared, and his dress was half clerical a modification which had changed his expression sufficiently to abstract the dandyism from his features, and to hinder, for a second, her belief in his identity. To Tess's sense there was, just at first, a ghastly bizarrery, a grim incongruity in the march of these solemn words of Scripture out of such a mouth. This too familiar intonation, less than four years earlier, had brought to her ears expressions of such divergent purpose that her heart became quite sick at the irony of the contrast. It was less of a reform than a transfiguration. The former curves of sensuousness were now modulated to lines of devotional passion. The lip-shapes that had meant seductiveness were now made to express supplication. The glow on the cheek that yesterday could be translated as riotousness was evangelized today into the splendor of pious rhetoric. Animalism had become fanaticism, paganism, Paulinism. The bold, rolling eye that had flashed upon her form in the old time with such mastery, now beamed with the rude energy of theolatry that was almost ferocious. Those black angularities which his face had used to put on when his wishes were thwarted now did duty in picturing the incorrigible backslider who would insist upon turning again to his wallowing in the mire. The lineaments, as such, seemed to complain. They had been diverted from their hereditary connotation to signify impressions for which nature did not intend them. Strange that their elevation was a misapplication to raise seemed to falsify. Yet could it be so? She would admit the ungenerous sentiment no longer. D'Urberville was not the first wicked man who had turned away from his wickedness to save his soul alive, and why should she deem it unnatural in him? It was but the usage of thought which had been jarred in her at hearing good new words in bad old notes. The greater the sinner, the greater the saint. It was not necessary to dive far into Christian history to discover that. Such impressions as these moved her vaguely and without strict definiteness. As soon as the nerveless pause of her surprise would allow her to stir, her impulse was to pass on, out of his sight. He had obviously not discerned her yet in her position against the sun. But the moment that she moved again he recognized her. The effect upon her old lover was electric, far stronger than the effect of his presence upon her. His fire, the tumultuous ring of his eloquence, seemed to go out of him. His lips struggled and trembled under the words that lay upon it, but deliver them it could not as long as she faced him. His eyes, after their first glance upon her face, hung confusedly in every other direction but hers, but came back in a desperate leap every few seconds. This paralysis lasted, however, but a short time, for Tess's energies returned with the atrophy of his, and she walked as fast as she was able past the barn and onward. As soon as she could reflect it appalled her, this change in their relative platforms. He who had wrought her undoing was now on the side of the spirit, while she remained unregenerate, and, as in the legend, it had resulted that her Cyprian image had suddenly appeared upon his altar, whereby the fire of the priest had been well-nigh extinguished. She went on without turning her head. Her back seemed to be endowed with a sensitiveness to ocular beams, even her clothing. So alive was she to a fancied gaze which might be resting upon her from the outside of that barn. All the way along to this point her heart had been heavy with an inactive sorrow. Now there was a change in the quality of its trouble. That hunger for affection too long withheld was for the time displaced by an almost physical sense of an implacable past which still engirdled her. It intensified her consciousness of error to a practical despair. The break of continuity between her earlier and present existence, which she had hoped for, had not after all taken place. Bygones would never be complete bygones, till she was a bygone herself. Thus absorbed she recrossed the northern part of Long Ash Lane at right angles and presently saw before her the road ascending whitely to the upland, along whose margin the remainder of her journey lay. Its dry, pale surface stretched severely onward, unbroken by a single figure, vehicle, or mark, save some occasional brown horse-droppings which dotted its cold aridity here and there. Whilst slowly breasting this ascent, Tess became conscious of footsteps behind her, and turning she saw approaching that well-known form, so strangely accoutred as the Methodist, the one personage in all the world she wished not to encounter alone on this side of the grave. There was not much time, however, for thought or illusion, and she yielded as calmly as she could to the necessity of letting him overtake her. She saw that he was excited less by the speed of his walk than by the feelings within him. Tess he said. She slackened speed without looking around. "'Tess,' he repeated, "'it is I, Alec d'Urberville.' She then looked back at him, and he came up. "'I see it is,' she answered coldly. "'Well, is that all? Yet I deserve no more.' "'Of course,' he added with a slight laugh. There is something of the ridiculous to your eyes in seeing me like this, but I must put up with that. I heard you had gone away. Nobody knew where. Tess, you wonder why I have followed you?" I do rather, and I would that you had not with all my heart. Yes, you may well say it, he returned grimly, as they moved onward together, she with unwilling tread. But don't mistake me. I beg this, because you may have been led to do so in noticing, if you did notice it, how your sudden appearance unnerved me down there. It was but a momentary faltering, and, considering what you have been to me, it was natural enough. But Will helped me through it, though perhaps you think me a humbug for saying it, and immediately afterwards I felt that of all the persons in the world whom it was my duty and desire to save from the wrath to come— sneer if you like—the woman whom I had so grievously wronged was that person. I have come with that sole purpose in view—nothing more." There was the smallest vein of scorn in her words of rejoinder. "'Have you saved yourself? Charity begins at home, they say.' "'I have done nothing,' he said indifferently. "'Heaven, as I have been telling my hearers, has done all. No amount of contempt that you can pour upon me, Tess, will equal what I have poured upon myself—the old Adam of my former years. Well, it is a strange story, believe it or not, but I can tell you the means by which my conversion was brought about, and I hope you will be interested enough at least to listen. Have you ever heard the name of the parson of Emminster? You must have done so. Oh, Mr Clare, one of the most earnest of his school! One of the few intense men left in the Church—not so intense as the extreme wing of Christian believers with which I have thrown in my lot, but quite an exception among the established clergy, the younger of whom are gradually attenuating the true doctrines by their sophistries, till they are but a shadow of what they were. I only differ from him on the question of Church and State. The interpretation of the text, "'Come out from among them, and be ye separate,' saith the Lord, That's all. He is one who, I firmly believe, has been the humble means of saving more souls in this country than any other man you can name. You have heard of him?" "'I have,' she said. He came to Trantridge two or three years ago to preach on behalf of some missionary society, and I, wretched fellow that I was, insulted him when, in his disinterestedness, he tried to reason with me and show me the way. He did not resent my conduct. He simply said that some day I should receive the first-fruits of the Spirit, and that those who came to scoff sometimes remained to pray. But there was a strange magic in his words. They sank into my mind. But the loss of my mother hit me most, and by degrees I was brought to see the daylight. Since then my one desire has been to hand on the true view to others and that is what I was trying to do today, though it is only lately that I preached hereabout. The first months of my ministry have been spent in the north of England among strangers, where I preferred to make my earliest clumsy attempts so as to acquire courage before undergoing that severest of all tests of one's sincerity, addressing those who have known one and have been one's companions in the days of darkness. If you could only know, Tess, the pleasure of having a good slap at yourself, I'm sure—' "'Don't go on with it!' she cried passionately, as she turned away from him to a stile by the wayside, on which she bent herself. "'I can't believe in such sudden things. I feel indignant with you for talking to me like this when you know what harm you've done me. You and those like you take your fill of pleasure on earth by making the life of such as me bitter and black with sorrow. And then it's a fine thing, when you've had enough of that, to think of securing your pleasure in Heaven by becoming converted. Out upon such I don't believe in you. I hate it." "'Tess,' he insisted, don't speak so. It came to me like a jolly new idea. And you don't believe me. What don't you believe?' "'Your conversion, your scheme of religion. Why?" she dropped her voice. "'Because a better man than you does not believe in such.' "'What a woman's reason! Who is this better man?' "'I cannot tell you.' "'Well,' he declared, a resentment beneath his words seeming ready to spring out at a moment's notice, "'God forbid that I should say that I am a good man, and you know I don't say any such thing. I am new to goodness, truly but newcomers see furthest sometimes." "Yes," she replied sadly, "but I cannot believe in your conversion to a new spirit. Such flashes as you feel, Alec, I fear don't last." Thus speaking she turned from the stile over which she had been leaning and faced him, whereupon his eyes, falling casually upon the familiar countenance and form, remained contemplating her. The inferior man was quiet in him now, but it was surely not extracted, nor even entirely subdued. — Don't look at me like that, he said abruptly. Tess, who had been quite unconscious of her action and mien, instantly withdrew the large dark gaze of her eyes, stammering with a flush, — I beg your pardon, and there was revived in her wretched sentiment come to her before that, in inhabiting the fleshly tabernacle with which nature had endowed her, she was somehow doing wrong. No, no, don't beg my pardon. But since you wear a veil to hide your good looks, why don't you keep it down?" She pulled down the veil, saying hastily, "'It was mostly to keep off the wind.' "'It may seem harsh of me to dictate like this,' he went on. But it is better that I should not look too often on you. It might be dangerous." Sh," said Tess. "'Well, women's faces have had too much power over me already for me not to fear them. An evangelist has nothing to do with such as they, and it reminds me of the old times that I would forget." After this their conversation dwindled to a casual remark now and then as they rambled onward. Tess, inwardly wondering how far he was going with her, and not liking to send him back by positive mandate. Frequently when they came to a gate or stile she found painted thereupon in red or blue letters some text of scripture, and she asked him if he knew who had been at pains to emblazon these announcements. He told her that the man was employed by himself and others who were working with him in that district to paint these reminders that no means might be left untried which might move the hearts of a wicked generation. At length the road touched the spot called Cross in Hand. Of all spots on the bleached and desolate upland, this was the most forlorn. It was so far removed from the charm which is sought in landscape by artists and view-lovers as to reach a new kind of beauty—a negative beauty of tragic tone. The place took its name from a stone pillar which stood there, a strange rude monolith, from a stratum unknown in any local quarry, on which was roughly carved a human hand. Differing accounts were given of its history and purport. Some authorities stated that a devotional cross had once formed the complete erection thereupon, of which the present relic was but the stump. Others that the stone as it stood was entire and that it had been fixed there to mark a boundary or place of meeting. Anyhow, whatever the origin of the relic, there was and is something sinister or solemn, according to mood, in the scene amid which it stands, something tending to impress the most phlegmatic passer-by. "'I think I must leave you now,' he remarked, as they drew near to this spot. "'I have to preach at Abbott's churnel at six this evening, and my way lies across to the right from here—and you upset me somewhat too, Tessie. I cannot—will not say why. I must go away and get strength. How is it that you speak so fluently now? Who has taught you such good English?" "'I have learnt things in my troubles,' she said evasively. What troubles have you had?" She told him of the first one the only one that related to him. D'Urberville was struck mute. "'I knew nothing of this till now,' he next murmured. "'Why didn't you write to me when you felt your trouble coming on?' She did not reply, and he broke the silence by adding, "'Well, you will see me again?' "'No,' she answered. "'Do not again come near me. I will think, but before we part, come here." He stepped up to the pillar. "'This was once a holy cross. Relics are not in my creed, but I fear you at moments, far more than you need fear me at present. And to lessen my fear, put your hand upon that stone hand, and swear that you will never tempt me by your charms or ways.' "'Good God! How can you ask what is so unnecessary—all that is furthest from my thought?" Yes, but swear it. Tess, half frightened, gave way to his importunity, placed her hand upon the stone, and swore. I am sorry you are not a believer, he continued, that some unbeliever should have got hold of you and unsettled your mind. But no more now. At home, at least, I can pray for you, and I will, and who knows what may not happen. I'm off. Good-bye." He turned to a hunting-gate in the hedge, and, without letting his eyes rest upon her, leapt over and struck out across the down in the direction of Abbott's churnel. As he walked his pace showed perturbation, and by-and-by, as if instigated by a former thought. He drew from his pocket a small book, between the leaves of which was folded a letter, worn and soiled, as from much re-reading. D'Urberville opened the letter. It was dated several months before this time, and was signed by Parson Clare. The letter began by expressing the writer's unfeigned joy at D'Urberville's conversion, and thanked him for his kindness in communicating with the parson on the subject it expressed Mr Clare's warm assurance of forgiveness for d'Urberville's former conduct, and his interest in the young man's plans for the future. He, Mr Clare, would very much have liked to see d'Urberville in the Church, to whose ministry he had devoted so many years of his own life, and would have helped him to enter a theological college to that end. But since his correspondent had possibly not cared to do this on account of the delay it would have entailed, he was not the man to insist upon its paramount importance. Every man must work as he could best work, and in the method towards which he felt impelled by the spirit. D'urberville read and re-read this letter, and seemed to quiz himself cynically. He had also read some passages from memoranda as he walked, till his face assumed a calm, and apparently the image of Tess no longer troubled his mind. She, meanwhile, had kept along the edge of the hill by which lay her nearest way home. Within the distance of a mile she met a solitary shepherd. "'What is the meaning of that old stone I have passed?' she asked of him. Was it ever a holy cross?" "'Cross? No, t'were not a cross. Tis a thing of ill omen, miss." It were put up in wild times by the relations of a malefactor who was tortured there by nailing his hand to a post, and afterwards hung. The bones lie underneath. They say he sold his soul to the devil, and that he walks at times." She felt the petite mort at this unexpectedly gruesome information, and left the solitary man behind her. It was dusk when she drew near to Flintcomash, and in the lane at the entrance to the hamlet she approached a girl and her lover without their observing her. They were talking no secrets, and the clear, unconcerned voice of the young woman, in response to the warmer accents of the man, spread to the chilly air as one soothing thing within the dusky horizon, full of a stagnant obscurity, upon which nothing else intruded. For a moment the voices cheered the heart of Tess, till she reasoned that this interview had its origin, on one side or the other, in the same attraction which had been the prelude to her own tribulation. When she came close the girl turned serenely and recognized her, the young man walking off in embarrassment. The woman was Iz Hewitt, whose interest in Tess's excursion immediately superseded her own proceedings. Tess did not explain very clearly its results, and Iz, who was a girl of tact, began to speak of her own little affair, a phase of which Tess had just witnessed. "'He is Amby Seedlin, a chap who used to sometimes come and help at Talbothays,' she explained indifferently. He actually inquired and found out I had come here, and has followed me. He says he's been in low with me these two years. But I have hardly answered him. End of Chapter Forty Five.